Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, creator of Jacobin Magazine and author of the Socialist Manifesto, Bhaskar Sankara. Bhaskar, how are things? Things are good. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, now that Kamala is on the DNC ticket, do you see the upcoming future for progressives and getting progressive ideas to the table as a harder feat? I mean, I think it's pretty much a, a, a wash. Um, Harris, at least, is on record as supporting, at least briefly, uh, right at the beginning of her campaign and, and before supporting Medicare for All. Um, she has a number of positions uh, that might make her more vulnerable to pressure than Biden. But ultimately, I mean, she's a... Um, Democrat who's not particularly associated with the progressive wing of the party and not particularly associated with this crop of insurgents, people like AOC, people like Ilhan Omar, people like Bernie Sanders. Um, So in that respect, we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, there's a reason why Biden picked her. But it's worth noting, I guess, the difference between a liberal senator and a progressive senator. So Harris is very much a conventional Democrat in that she supports policies supported by other Democrats. She doesn't really break party ranks in Congress and so on. Um, but she's not particularly associated with the Bernie Sanders um, agenda. So I think overall it's pretty much a wash. Um, I'm sure Biden could have conjured someone even worse, but it, it definitely isn't a victory for, for the left or even progressives more broadly. Well, where do you think us progressives need to need to really focus in on right now? Well, I think the most important issue and the issue that can, in fact, win a majority in the here and now is Medicare for all. You know, um, I think the United States is a country that still has um, tens of millions of people who are uninsured, many more who are underinsured, uh, many people who are burdened with medical debt. Um, and we have a really weak public health infrastructure. We're seeing that with the coronavirus. We uh, will probably, by the time it's all said and done, maybe have a quarter million deaths. Uh, obviously, a lot of that's not just treatment when people are sick, but it relates to uh, many other uh, factors in the, the government response. But you know, this is an issue where I think we should aspire to win, if not a majority, then a polarity of um, Republicans on even. And it's a clear issue where we're saying that a system built around profit, built around the private market, is failing, and we aim to replace it with a system built around need and a system built around the public sector. So it checks all the boxes as far as filling in an urgent moral need, um, solving a problem that working people are having, and also, it, it checks ideological boxes as well. So um, I do think the idea of focus is important because there's many issues that matter, and there's, there's really an importance to create a broad-based, multiracial working-class movement fighting for things like uh, criminal justice, fighting for things like universal child care and a Green New Deal and so on. But ultimately, we need to put at the forefront um, movements and demands that can win a majority in the here and now, and then we use that to build a wider coalition that, of course, um, includes and amplifies other demands as well. And I think Medicare for All is at the top of my list, at least. 
Well, Bernie ran a very interesting campaign in that it was absolutely nothing like what Debs had ran in the past or any other socialist had ran in the past, not really focusing on unions, focusing on really getting the public out there. Do you think it's important to continue what he started with this, with with new people coming up like AOC? Or do you think that it needs to be a blend of both and we really need to get the labor back into the... The, the the consciousness. Well, I actually do think that Sanders, more so than other candidates, did in fact emphasize organized labor uh, quite a lot. True. true. Um, I, I, I and he had a set of um, a program that would have in fact enhanced greatly the power of organized labor. The fact remains that organized labor is still only eight nine percent of the U.S. workforce as far as union density. It's still is probably the most vital strategic um, group for progressive politics in the country. You know, they have the social power, unionized workers, to push their demands on a much wider scale to cause disruption at a much wider scale than, than social movements. You, know, you could have 10,000 people in the streets, and it might be for an important, worthy cause in every regard, but you're going to end up with more leverage if you have 10,000 dock workers going on strike. You shut down the economy. Um, so I think from that respect, of course, organized labor should be at the center of our strategic um, vision. But we do so not just to fetishize organized labor, but to push a wider working class agenda. And that means, of course, reaching people and engaging in politics where we can. And right now, for most Americans, Politics means something you do every two or every four years, you know, voting. And the Sanders campaign hope was to exploit an electoral opening and to build an electoral coalition behind progressive uh, politics and one that could have ultimately kind of snuck their way into state power and then using that state power made deeper, longer-term organizing efforts possible. Um, Obviously, a shortcut to power did not work. Um, but it is true in general, and I think this is what your question was getting at, that the younger left, I think, needs to have more of a focus on organized labor. And that means not just on the social movement work the labor does, like a union endorsing the Green New Deal or something like that, but on the day-to-day bread-and-butter work defending the interests of their members on the, the shop floor. I mean, th- these are the types of things we need to start pushing the idea that every single American should have a union representation. Uh, that's a basic workplace right. And even if we can't get a majority behind some of the progressive policies that unions support, I think we can get a majority behind that basic right. And that, of course, creates a much stronger, larger constituency for um, for the progressive policies to, to begin with. So I definitely think that there's a detachment from the younger left in both Europe and the U.S., um, from any sort of working-class movement, any sort of working-class milieu, especially that of organized uh, labor. Well, do you see the left in, in Europe especially rising to power more quickly now than they will in America at this point? I mean, it really depends, right? Uh, every country is at a different um, stage. 
the broad left, as far as the center-left left coalition, is already in power in Spain and Portugal. Um, not obviously <laughs> administering the program that I would want to see, but, <laughs> but certainly behind a broadly anti-austerity mission, uh, a broadly anti-right populist mission. And other parts of Europe, like Central Europe um, and Poland, um, Hungary, places like that, you know, the, the outlook is very bleak. Um, it looks like we're going to see right-wing hegemony for a very long time. Um, so it really depends uh, place by place, even if you think about the U.S., Canada, U.K., and Australia, you see how divergent things are. You know, these are countries that are more interlinked than almost any other at the level of culture and, and language and shared history and so on. But you had within the U.K. and the U.S. the insurgencies of Corbyn and Sanders, respectively. But you've had nothing like that in Canada and nothing like that in Australia, where the Australian Labour Party is probably worse than the NDP and certainly worse than the UK Labour Party, even under uh, Starmer. So, you know, I, I think we are in a... Um, we, we, it, it's hard to just cast a broad stroke. It does seem to me that on the whole, right populism has been the greater beneficiary of this long last 12 years of crisis since the recession, and that the breakdown of the neoliberal centre is on the whole benefiting the right more than it's benefiting the left. And what makes me very nervous is that we're seeing with the rise of Vox in Spain and other forces that countries that we used to think of as being largely immune to forms of right-wing populism are now seeing their reemergence. Um, I share that the same might happen in places like Ireland and Portugal, where there's currently not a strong right. And with the challenges of climate change, with future uh, refugee crises that are bound to come and are related to climate change, I think we're going to have an environment that will be quite favorable to the most loathsome parts of the political spectrum. And uh, uh, we should be afraid of that. We should be trying to organize and do what we can to, to build up some sort of anti-establishment alternative to the center you know so it's a difficult task but we need to both distance ourselves from the establishment center and also attack the right um rather than just kind of rallying behind a pseudo popular front with that center because i think in the long run that'll only create the conditions in which the right will will prosper well would you say that young liberals and young progressives really need to essentially stop being online and really just start going for offices and start trying to get things done? Well, I mean, I think that, that, you know, being online has been part of the fundraising efforts and part of the, the things that have fueled the growth of a lot of these far left um, organizations. I think we need to see online and online activism as a limited tool and not probably the best way to sort out um, strategic dilemmas and all these other things. You know, it, it fosters a culture that I think is is broadly the antithesis of the type of solidaristic, understanding, compassionate culture that we need within left organizations. But at the same time, you know, it, it's one of our weapons, the fact that we can do online fundraising and we can do targeted ads and we do other things, um, you know, more effectively than our than our um, counterparts and other parts of the political um, 
spectrum. So I think logging off a bit more is probably good advice to anyone, um, whether in a <laughs> political sphere or not. You know, I think there's something gained by just um, alone time and contemplation and self-development and time with family and friends and all these other things. And we have been warped into I think, some of the vicariousness of of just constantly consuming things online. Um, I think, though, that's a broader um, social quandary than a strategic one. But I, you know, I, I do think that the same thing when it, when obviously coronavirus subsides, it'll be good to be able to be in in-person meetings and to be able to develop trust and and those hard bonds with people who are engaged in politics with you instead of just kind of posturing for for likes and and, and clout um, in this in this fair. So um, running for office or organizing on the shop floor or participating in a tenants union, all these things are important political acts and obviously that should take um, precedence over over anything else. Um, but I'm not gonna tell people to log off if they're online for entertainment, but just don't confuse that with politics. Well, what I really love, excuse me, sorry. What I really love about your book, The Socialist Manifesto, is you truly do make the case for socialism as not just an idea and not just something that we should turn to because it's just something against capitalism. But why do you think that socialism in America and frankly, North America is still such a dirty word? So I think that. For one thing, socialism is associated as a word with very bad dictatorships, and we shouldn't shy away from understanding the record of actually existing socialism in the 20th century, understanding the record of the Soviet Union, understanding the record of forced collectivization in China and and other places, um, too, and um, critiquing and differentiating those forms of socialism with what we have in mind when we say socialism, when we talk about a society in which democracy is extended from just the political sphere into economic and social spheres, when we talk about a world uh, that more deeply empowers people, both collectively and as individuals, and can actually, in my mind, be a better guarantor of individual rights, liberal rights, uh, than liberalism can. Um, but it's important to be honest, I think, about about the record and be honest that some forms of, of, of socialism, some socialist experiments have been disasters in every uh, sense of the, the, the word. But I think that connotation really just sticks to people of a certain age. And for those of us who grew up after the Cold War, there's less of that association. If anything, when I think a lot of young people think of socialism in the U.S., they don't really think of my vision radical break with capitalism and and political and economic democracy as socialism. They probably think of Sweden or Norway. And I don't think that's a bad start. You know, it's better they think of that than think of gulags and breadlines. But this is what I want us to um, to start pushing, which is that to be a socialist is to think about certain rights that people deserve just by virtue of being born, not based on their ability to pay, is to think about how 
democracy should be extended into the workplace. And it's to think about how political rights, so-called bourgeois, <clears throat> sorry, let me, let me take that part again. Political rights, you know, so-called bourgeois democracy, you know, is, they're not bad. They're just insufficient. We need to find ways to, to really make them deeper and richer by tying them to, to social, social rights. So, um, obviously I want, it's great that I think we're finally getting the chance in the, the U.S. and elsewhere to explain what we mean by socialism. But fundamentally, this movement has to be of, by, and for working people. And it has to be rooted in tangible change in their lives. You know, just the revival of an ideology does nothing if it's just associated with a band of uh, misfits on the fringes of the society, you know, myself included. And it's associated with just fanciful uh, schemes, you know, the power of socialism, modern socialism, what the left used to call scientific socialism, wasn't just that it was a framework, an idea, and whatever else. It was that it was tied with a real, vibrant workers' movement. And this is what we need to get back to. We need to tie these ideas to an actual base and to tangible, real improvements in people's lives. Well, you started off writing the blog, The Activist. Was this the initial inspiration to start Jacobin? Or did you have other areas that were kind of inspiring you to really get your own paper out there? Yeah, so I was, um, as you mentioned, uh, the editor for a couple of years of the Young Democratic Socialist um, blog, The Activist. And that definitely gave me the first experiences when I was just in, in uh, college of how to edit how to write, how to do those those things. Um, uh, then after that, yeah, I think in general, it was a time that was basically a lull for left politics as a whole. And I felt that there needed to be something done to reach people with socialist ideas, to advocate for um, important movements that, that could improve the lives of working people, um, and so on. And, and often when there's not a particularly vibrant political outlet for that, you start a journal, right? You write and propagandize um, until you can figure out a way to organize. I think if I was getting engaged with politics 10 years later, when ESA was already on the uptick, when uh, there was all these other things going on, the Bernie Sanders campaign, the struggle for Medicare for All and a Green New Deal, I probably would have spent more of my time um, with that. You know, obviously I did activism when I was in high school and college, but um, I definitely turned inward to writing and thinking um, at a time of, of pessimism and defeat. And luckily, you know, all that work during those lean years is proving somewhat useful now that we actually have a growing, vibrant left. And when there's a much larger audience for these sorts of ideas that's challenging the old centrist establishment. Well, how accepting was your professors and your students at your time at George Washington University towards the left? I mean, I would say that the left didn't, didn't really register in any uh, tangible sense, so neither hostility nor, nor support. It just really wasn't a huge factor. Among the far left, probably various strains of, of anarchism were more popular. 
uh, then others would probably just call themselves liberals or progressives against things like sweatshops, working with us to support a uh, union drive of um, cafeteria workers, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, but socialism, or to be a socialist, to talk about socialism was considered beyond anachronistic. And this is just 2007, 2008. You know, this isn't too long ago. Did you think that we were going to see a rise of somebody so quick in your lifetime, somebody like, like a Bernie Sanders? No, I thought this would be a much slower, longer, uphill climb. And Bernie really sped up things. Um, his campaign alone, I think, sped up things by by a couple decades. And it's funny, we're still so far behind, and we're still so weak, and we're still so marginal. But it's hard to compare to where things were even five years ago. And obviously... Five years before that, we didn't even have the Wisconsin Uprising or Occupy or Black Lives Matter or anything else. We just had the dim memory of the anti-globalization protests and the um, anti-Iraq war movement. So uh, I can't overstate enough the role, the unique role that Bernie Sanders played and how quickly he, he really accelerated things. Who do you think the best person to expand upon his ideas is going to be or have we even been introduced to this person yet i'm not sure we've been introduced to them you know i think you could see in many people like aoc you could see bits and pieces of what made bernie such a compelling uh leader i think unfortunately aoc like a lot of young leftists myself included what we don't have is the, the clarity that bernie had the ability to take all the complexities of the world and all the various important issues that we care about and distill it to a clear and sharp 30-second pitch. You know, to be able to say, like he would, that, you know, the world is actually kind of simple. You're working hard, you're trying your best, and you're not getting far enough ahead. And it's not your fault. It's the fault of millionaires and billionaires who are profiting off this terrible situation that you're in. And this has been the fate of the American worker for the last 30, 40 years. That message encapsulates so much in such an economy of words. And I think from the DSA crowd, even for someone as incredibly talented and politically committed as Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, there's there's not that clarity. Um, Ilhan Omar, I think, is is pretty damn close in certain ways from being able to to capture, um, you know, some of the sentiments that made Bernie so popular. I think Rashida, in many ways, is the most politically reliable of the, the squad, too. Um, but again, you know, Bernie was really a unique creature. He was came up through the new left, but he was trained in the language and tactics of the old left within the Socialist Party at his time, the Civil Rights Movement. He adapted all those lessons and all those tactics to long periods of third-party runs. You know, he just has this this incredibly unique biography and this unique uh, ability to mainstream um, previously fringe ideas that I don't think really can can be matched by anyone. But I should say part of Bernie's power and his appeal wasn't anything unique to Bernie Sanders. Um... Part of his appeal was just the fact that he was telling the truth 
about what people were feeling. You know, he was saying relatable things. If people didn't feel squeezed, if they didn't feel like they were getting the, uh, a raw deal, they wouldn't have supported him. If they didn't think that his solutions to these problems, a more expansive safety net and programs like Medicare for All, you know, a bigger role for the state, socializing, uh, you know, some of these, these, these necessities, they didn't think that was viable. They wouldn't have supported him either. Uh, obviously, he combined that with integrity and a real long track record in public office that proved to people that he can actually get things done, he can actually deliver on his promises. But if not for the real contradictions that capitalism itself created, uh, that especially this form of neoliberal capitalism is creating every day, our ideas wouldn't have resonance. So as long as there's that that existing injustice, I have to believe there will be forever emerging movements against injustice and leaders like Bernie Sanders. Well, you and I are around the same age, and I know that I was finding Marxist works and works related to him around grade five. I think you were almost the same in that. Where were you finding some of your earliest writings, and who really struck you the most in the socialist ideas? Well, I actually um, came to the left a lot through history. And I would say particularly one one historical figure that I had a fascination with was uh, Leon Trotsky and his his tragic uh, arc. You know, there's a number of great biographies written of him. I read the Deutsche Trilogy at a young age. and Before that, actually Irving Howe had a great biography of Trotsky. Mm-hmm. And then from there, kind of went to the, the basics. You know, I think that often history is the best thing for people to start with rather than a book of theory. You know, history can can be an easier, more accessible starting point. Um, so both Irving Howe and Michael Harrington um, wrote some great books about the history of American socialism and Harrington, an even more sweeping attempt to, to conceptualize, you know, couple centuries of, of socialist history in, in his 1970s book, Socialism, a book that my own book, The Socialist Manifesto, is heavily indebted to. Uh, later on, I read Eric Hobsbawm's book, which I, I still think are just masterful, even despite his political commitments on the left. I mean, just masterful works of, works of history. And, you know, other little little books and little pamphlets and, and things like that. But, but it was definitely history more than anything else. And when I got older, in the last 10 years, actually, I've turned more to reading Marxist sociologists and, and engaging deeply with people like Ralph Miliband and Jerry Cohen and Eric Owen Wright, people like Ellen Wood. Um, but it was fundamentally the historians that, Well, I have to ask, do you think that if Trotsky would have gained power instead of Stalin, that the word socialism would be incredibly different today? Well, it's difficult to say. I think that Stalinism did not have to go the way that it did. I think that was purely contingent. You know, the sheer brutality of forced collectivization, the liquidation of the kulaks, all these things were the product of Stalin and a small clique um, around him. Uh, Trotsky also showed, I think, throughout his life, a tremendous amount of improvisation. You know, he was a dogmatist in the extreme at times, but he's also someone who 
shifted very quickly to proposing something even before Lenin, similar to the NEP. Um, so I have a feeling that some of his plans in the late 20s and early 30s would have led to some man-made disasters, some real problems with collectivization, but his response to it wouldn't be even more br brutal force collectivization. I think his response would have been a retreat. Uh, I also think that he was someone who would have broadly respected uh, the arts and at least um, a free civil society in the cultural sphere, even though you know, his own views on things like independent political parties and trade unions under a worker state were, were you know, much, were, were not extremely laudable. So, you know, it, it's almost like you could, you could criticize the government of Vietnam, you know, uh, both North Vietnam under Ho Chi Minh or the, the post-unification um, uh, um, government for its authoritarianism and for its um, stifling of free speech and so on. But no one ever, ever who's serious about history would compare that government and what it's managed to accomplish with Stalin. You know, or, or even with with, um, with Mao, who has a more mixed record than, than Stalin. So I, I do think there's a lot of contingency about what Stalin did. I do not think that Trotsky, though, would have delivered us on a path to real Soviet democracy and international world revolution. But I think he could have saved many, many, many millions of lives and constructed a better and potentially reformable uh, form of, of state socialism. I think one of the most important um, pieces in American history for me is the HUAC trials and the trial of Alger Hiss that came before that. Why do you think that there's not a lot of studying these particular trials in post-secondary? And it, it really goes to history in general. America really doesn't like to accept Debs and other socialist figures and really learn about them why is it still not being learned about in post-secondary, do you think? Well, sure, I guess it really depends. I mean, uh, education is so weird in the U.S. It's so fragmented. I would say in New York, we definitely had a lot on McCarthyism. Uh, we definitely had, a, had, had quite a bit uh, on that. On the first Red Square, there was not a lot, at least until high school. And I think that's probably the much more blatant form of government attack on a left because it was scared of the left. It was scared of its anti-war leadership and its influence in the trade unions and other things in the 1910s. Um, um, I think by the early 50s, the left was already battered and destroyed. You know, we had already been purged out of the unions. We've already been, um, you know, really hurt by the Truman administration and, and many other, other things. Um, but if anything, I would argue that the communist tradition in the U.S. had benefited from its connection with a broader layer of liberalism. And in fact, were portrayed, we as in the, the far left more broadly, you know, I don't come out of communist tradition, but, but we're, we're actually portrayed, I think, quite well when people look back on the history of the 50s now as noble American defenders of um, free speech it's a little bit more complicated than that, obviously, because in some of these cases, you know, these, these were people who were um, defenders of also pretty bad regimes abroad. But 
Um, overall, I think our, our reputation is quite good in the 20th century, at least. And, you know, rightly so. I don't think you can associate um, some uh, woman in New York in the 1930s handing out uh, leaflets on the corner of the Bronx, in the Bronx or something for the da- daily worker uh, advocating um, an end to segregation and advocating uh, a more robust group, or a new deal. I don't think you can compare that person with the uh, administrators of gulags and Ocean Away. Uh, I, re- I really don't think that would be fair, and it kind of misses what, what drew people to the, to the party to begin with. But overall, it might just be a crazy impression of mine or the result of me being inculcated in a more liberal milieu. But it seems to me that... Um, the left is sometimes erased, uh, and, and historically, I guess, has, has been erased, but it's, it's less that later CP left that's erased and more the late 19th century, very early 20th century left. But I'm actually curious to hear what you think about that. I would say when people like Henry Wallace, FDR's Veep, who went to run a very socialist campaign, and guys like Alger Hiss, who do things that help the overall complexity of America sometimes do get swept under the rug, especially in post-secondary. But I do tend to agree when we do look back at the left, it is in a more favorable and morally acceptable light than most. But I think that's the perfect starting point for the next time we sit down. But right now, what can we expect from you coming up? Well, um, I'm working right now on a Spanish edition of Jackman, which should be out later this year. And um, besides for that, just much more of the same, you know, more from Jacobin. Uh, we're working on the new issue of Catalyst, which should be out too soon, our scholarly journal that's associated with us. Uh, I'm personally working on a book that is broadly on the economics of a feasible socialism. So what role for markets, what role for planning, you know, all those those questions. I'm collaborating with it with a few comrades on that. And um yeah, I mean that's that's about it. Uh, often with this work it's a long term marathon. You know, it's not really a um a, a sprint. So every day just trying to clock in my ten, eleven hours and you know <laughs> and just keep on. Well, thank you so much for coming on here. Um, It means a lot to me, and I hope that you continue the good fight. I will continue to do the good fight. And, uh, yeah, just thank you again for coming on. That's great, dude. It's been a pleasure, and and definitely stay in touch. Awesome. Thank you. All right, bye. Thank you for listening. I just want to thank Bhaskar Sankara so, so much for coming on here. Make sure to pick up his book, The Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality, as well as his paper, Jacobin, available on newsstands, or head over to jacobinmag.com. This concludes our broadcast day.